0: Hey, Merry Christmas! Christmas. I am uh, looking forward to telling you the the story of a song that was just sung that um, the backstory is very, very fascinating. Before I get to it, um, I want to just communicate that, you know, Christmas is a wonderful time of year. It's It's the most wonderful time of the year, and we often sing about it in that way. But the effect of Christmas sometimes misses its mark in all of our lives, especially in the world in which we live. And a song that... That we have just heard, O Holy Night, uh, has a way of uh, getting back into us the true meaning of what Christmas is all about. And I want to tell you how that song came about, and we're going to hear it sung one more time before we leave today. I want to begin in 1847. Uh, The first man that we're introduced to is a man by the name of Placido Capio. He was a poet. He was a, a wine connoisseur from a small French town, and He was known more for his wine and his poetry than for his church attendance. But one day, the local parish priest approached him and asked him to write a poem for the upcoming Christmas Mass. And proud to be recognized for his poetic skills, he gladly consented to sharing his talents for the church. And while he was riding on a horse and buggy to Paris, he decided to begin his assignment. And as he thought about this poem that the priest had asked him to write about, he realized that the poem probably should be religious, of course, and that the poem needed to reflect on the meaning of Christmas, and that the poem should probably be based on Scripture. That would be a good idea. And so, using the gospel of Luke as his guide, this irreligious wine-distributing poet began to imagine what it would have been like to witness the birth of Christ. And the thoughts of Christ's birth began to give him inspiration and by the time he arrived in Paris, the poem had been written and he entitled it Cantique de Noël, A Christmas Hymn. Now having been so tremendously inspired by the poem that he had been able to write, Capio realized that uh, it's more than just a poem, that this, this poem needed to be put to music. The problem is that he was not musically inclined and so he needed to find somebody that who would come alongside and perhaps put this poem to music, and he found a friend by the name of Adolphe Adams, an accomplished, classically trained uh, musician who had successfully written music for various productions in London and Berlin and St. Petersburg. And yet when Adams studied the words of Cantique de Noël, he found himself challenged Because uh, he was facing a challenge that he'd never had to deal with before. As he was reading the words of this poem, he realized that this poem had obvious spiritual themes, and this poem was embracing the birth of a Savior. And so why was Adolphe challenged? He was challenged because he was Jewish. And as Ace Collins writes, the words of the poem represented a holiday that Adams didn't even celebrate and more so, it represented a baby that he did not recognize as a savior. However, he was constrained by his deep friendship with Capio, and he consented to write the musical score for this poet's words. Both the lyrics and the words were received with great joy on that Christmas Eve at that, par- at that parish, and the song was performed just three weeks later on Christmas Eve. So, uh, But that's not the end of the story. Of course, at first, the poem turned to song was... Uh, quickly embraced by the local church and by many churches in France. But later, Capio, the original poet, decided to depart from the church and he joined a a rogue socialist movement and and it was discovered that the composer Adams was uh, Jewish, wasn't even a Christian believer, and as a result, the song was denounced by the established church. Though it had by this time been very much embraced by the French people, it was thrown out of the church based on it being, quote, unfit for church services and totally absent of the spirit of religion. However, even though the established church tried to bury the song, the real church, French believers, continued to sing this great song. And 10 years later, an obscure American writer brought this song to a whole new audience On the other side of the world in the United States, and his name was John Dwight. John Dwight was born in 1813 in Boston. He graduated from Harvard College in the Divinity School, and he sought to fulfill his calling uh, by serving as a universalist liberal minister. Uh, However, one thing uh, stood in the way of his calling to be a minister, even a universalist minister, and that was he was deathly afraid to stand in front of people, and so public speaking was a problem for him. Uh, he would have such severe panic attacks before preaching uh, his messages that he finally had to resign his pastorate, and he sought another vocation, and his other vocation became writing, specifically editorial writing of music. He founded and he a periodical that he entitled Dwight's Journal of Music. And for 30 years, his publication, his journal grew and grew and grew. One day in 1887, looking for new music to review and to write about, Dwight came across an unknown musical piece written in French. It was entitled Cantique de Noël. Dwight read the lyrics in French and then played the music, and he was immediately overcome by the spiritual power Of the story. Keeping the original meaning from the French text, Dwight translated the lyrics into English and published the song in his magazine, but under a new title, and he titled the song, O Holy Night. But that's not the end of the story. Nearly 20 years passes by. Adams has since long passed away. Capio and Dwight are in their retirement, and it's now Christmas Eve 1906. And Reginald Fessiden, a 33-year-old professor, former chief chemist of Tom, uh, with Thomas Edison, he was about to accomplish something that the world had never, ever experienced. Using a new type of generator, Pheasenden spoke into a microphone. And for the first time in history, the human voice was broadcast wirelessly over the airwaves. And what were his first words? His first words were from Luke 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. He read the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. And immediately, radio operators on ships and other locations who were used to simply receiving and giving messages through the sounds and the clicks of Morse code were now compelled and now were hearing a human voice translated to them through the airwaves. And when Fezenden had finished his reading from Luke's gospel about the birth of Jesus, he picked up his violin, and the very first song that was sent out wirelessly was the song, O Holy Night. And all of this from a song whose origin goes way back to the request of a forgotten parish priest written by an apostate poet whose musical score was written by a Jewish composer. And yet, this song lives on today, and we've already heard a rendition of it by their gospel choir. But here's the question. The question is, what does the song mean? What's the meaning of the song? What are the lyrics really saying to us? How could a song that has had such an enduring effect over some 160 years, how can it continue to be one of our favorite songs at this Christmas season, in spite of the fact that its origins come from people who were far from God. I mean, would we be singing a song today in our churches, worshiping Christ at Christmas, knowing that it was written by Fergie or Taylor Swift or Miley Cyrus? The unredeemed sources of this song come to be, and they represent the lives of multiplied numbers of people at Christmas who, who find themselves participating in Christmas services and Christmas thoughts, even though they're far from God, even though they may not be very spiritual in their life. But it seems like every Christmas there comes this time of the year where everybody's heart is drawn a little bit closer to the Christ child, that God 2,000 years ago comes into this world And he doesn't come merely to be a baby, to be worshiped in a sentimental sense, but we know that Jesus comes as a baby to live a perfect life and to die on the cross eventually so that he might be our Lord and Savior. That Christmas is about Jesus who lives in us and he lives through us. But the world would want to put that aside and simply want to think of Jesus in a sentimental fashion. But what does this song teach us? What does it teach us? I think that even from the way in which it comes to be through the lives of people that maybe weren't even believers themselves, uh, tells to us that God uses all kinds of means in which to get his message declared to this world. Uh, he's, he used a donkey on an occasion to get his message to people. Paul writes this in Philippians 1.18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So as we look at the lyrics of the song, what do they mean to us? I think that this song, though it comes from an unsanctified poet, a non-believing Jewish composer, a liberal universalist minister, I think it speaks very powerfully to us. Three things about God's love for us. That when you think about these lyrics and you read them and then you put them to music, I think it powerfully impacts us. And I don't know if you've taken enough time to slow the song down so that you might reflect on its lyrics, but having done so, I pass on to you three things that have impacted me. And the first is this, that this song in the first verse teaches us of our soul's immeasurable worth. "'O holy night, the stars are brightly shining.'" It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. Do you feel your soul's worth this morning? Life has a way of stripping us of our awareness of our soul's worth to the heart of God. We become inundated and we become reminded and we become encumbered by our sins and our failings and our faults. And uh, as the songwriter writes, where, where sin and error pining, where this, this, uh, this, uh, this sense that my life is more defined by my sin than by my Savior who's come to redeem me from my sins, that the message of Jesus is though we are in encumbered by a load of sin that would condemn us to eternal damnation. We have a Savior who's come and His birth reminds us of our soul's immeasurable worth. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your forefathers, but you have been redeemed by Precious blood, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Your soul's worth has nothing to do with your net worth. Your soul's worth has nothing to do even with your own sense of self-worth. That to God who loves you, that to God who created you, that God who has called you, that to God who, has, who is forming you and shaping you and preparing you, regardless of your emotions on a morning like this when you're, uh, when, you're, when you're stacked with all the assignments in the last part of a semester. And there's issues that you worry about from home and the issues of challenge and uncertainty in our world today. It's easy to lose the sense of your soul's worth. But your soul's worth is not based on this world, but it's based on God, the Father who sent His Son at Christmas, and that son who gave his life at the cross, which is Easter. So this song teaches us about the value, the immeasurable value of our soul's worth. The second thing, if you go to verse number two, that this song teaches us not only our soul's immeasurable worth, but kind of on the flip side, it also teaches us of our life's measurable strength. What I mean by this is that our life's strength, our our life's abilities, our life's resources are very limited in our own strength, in our own abilities. Our soul's worth is immeasurable. It's infinite. It's from the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega, as far as the East is from the West, is the existence of God, and it's His love for us that is eternal. And yet, our strength and our abilities and our resources and, and our desire to make it in life, we all know that It's very measurable. It's very limited. We only have so much to offer from ourselves in this life that we want to give to God. But notice these words in verse 2. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts, by His cradle we stand. I'm sure that you've stood at the cradle of a newborn baby. It might be a niece or a nephew For those of you that are parents, it's been your own children or your grandchildren. And every time you stand by the cradle of a newborn, there's this this sense of hope. There's this sense of anticipation. There's this sense that, that there's something good in this world as you reflect on the miracle of conception and it results in this beautiful, beautiful child. The awesomeness of life, the innocence of a brand new babe, and it spawns hope. But it's not long until that glowing fades away and and we have to deal with life. And difficulties come and challenges pound on our desk and obligations are beyond our abilities and expectations are hammered upon us that bring us to a place where we don't have what it takes in ourselves to do this thing called life and to fulfill this thing that is the call of God in our lives. And we recognize that our life strength is very measurable. We recognize just how measurable our strength is, just how limited our ability is in ourselves. And we recognize, again, how how short we fall, even through our best efforts. And it's in that moment that if we go a little bit further in verse 2, it says this, The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. For he knows our need, our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king and before the lowly bend. That in our weakness and in our inabilities and in our senses of God, how do I do what you've called me to do and how do I make it through this life that you've called me to be victorious in? We're called to bend before him to bend before this lowly Savior born in a manger. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us exactly how to do that when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me all you who are tired and carrying heavy loads and I will give you rest. Become my servants and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for serving me is easy and my load is light. You see, when you look at the lyrics of a song like this, and though we sing them year after year after year, sometimes, if not always, just kind of without even thinking about them, we lose the impact. And in this song's particular, we lose the impact that our soul is of a measurable worth. And yet our strength is very, very measurable. But there's a third thing that this song teaches us, and I think it is so appropriate and so powerful, especially in, in the culture and the climate of our culture today. And that is this, that this song teaches us about our life's treasurable relationships. Notice what it says in verse 3. Truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break, for the slave is our brother, and in His name all oppression shall cease. Though we live in a country that has abolished slavery, Uh, we know that there are many forms of types of slavery. There are many forms of prejudice still. There are many forms of discrimination. There are many forms of hatred. There are many forms uh, and manifestations that, that, that cause us to war against each other. The songwriter was correct in implying that Treating another human being with prejudice is completely inconsistent with following Jesus Christ. John writes in his first epistle, John 1, 2, 9, "...anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness." Whoever loves his brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in him that makes him stumble. But whoever hates his brother and sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Do you embrace the fact that you have brothers and sisters of a different skin color? Do you embrace the fact that you have brothers and sisters who are of a different culture, a different ethnic background, a different political persuasion? Of course you do. The Bible records that the birth of Christ is saturated with this quality of humility from the place in which He was born to the family in which He was born to the hometown in which He was born to the life that Jesus lived in utter humility to the way in which He was crucified, dead, and buried. Humility is saturated through the gospel story. And that humility is to overflow into our lives and how we love each other with humility and with grace. And yet there are many who simply cannot bring themselves to treating other human beings with grace and humanity and humility. And I wonder if it's because these who struggle to love others are struggling to understand their soul's immeasurable worth. Can we believe today that in reviewing and reflecting and celebrating, being moved by God's immeasurable love and the immeasurable worth of our own soul, that it frees us to love those who maybe are difficult to love, who are different than us to love? And of course, that's true. That when I come to understand how much God loves me with no measure, it empowers me with great measure to love those in whom I might consider to be an enemy it might be that those who struggle to love other people, to treasure their relationships, it's because they've experienced issues in life that are beyond their own strength and they've tried to do everything in life in their own strength, not recognizing that God has come to give us strength beyond our own selves. <clears throat> to close this chapel service, I'd like to invite uh, Vinny and Gina to come and um, they are going to sing the classic rendition of O Holy Night. And what I'd like for you to do is, as they sing these lyrics, verses 1 and 3, that you would allow the backstory of this song to uh, minister to you, to challenge you, to encourage you. But not so much the backstory that I've given to you. That's not what's most important. But what's most important is the spiritual truths of these words that we often sing year after year after year, but we've not really thought about our soul's immeasurable worth, and our strength's limited abilities, and how we should treasure other relationships. So allow God to speak to you as Gina and Vinny sing this song.